as we're starting a, a new series of conversations this morning that we're calling Response. And we're going to work our way through one of the New Testament books, Peter's first letter called First Peter. And we're going to be talking about how to respond to the culture. This morning, I'm not going to trot out a bunch of statistics and stuff, but there are a lot of compelling statistics about our culture and where we are and where we're headed. And it seems like in many ways, not all, but it seems like in many ways, the culture is moving away from its sort of uh, Christian moorings. And how are we as individuals and as a church, how are we supposed to respond to that? Peter gives us some really a practical advice and also some inspiring advice at times. So this is a great time to, to be having this conversation, couching it, not only in the season in the United States, but in the conversation that we're going to be having at Gateway. By the way, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about who we are. Interestingly, Peter begins this whole discussion of how to respond to the culture really by talking about who we are. So can you launch us, Kyle? Read First Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to be spending our time this morning actually picking apart the introduction to this uh, series and to this book. We'll be looking at the first two verses, but Kyle's going to read for us the first three verses of First Peter. So if you have a Bible, can you look, or if you've got it on your phone, First Peter chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, it will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And as we often do here at Gateway, I'm going to ask us to go old school and let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Kyle? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, thank you so much for your work in us and around us. We thank you for the explosion that happened in the middle of history when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Father, we pray that over the next several weeks you will bring that to light in our hearts and you will train us to respond the way you would respond, not out of retirement or not out of anger. We would not be fueled by our political agenda, but God, we would be fueled in all of our conversations by our connection with you and, frankly, our connection to the future. I pray especially today, Lord God, that you would be opening up our hearts and showing us, make this real, show us who we are in you. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, I've asked Ty to stay with me here for a second because he's going to play the part of Peter in just a second. So I don't often do this at Gateway, but I really, this morning, I want to ask you to do a little work with me. Today, you're never supposed to say this, but today threatens to be a little boring. Today, we're going to enter into almost a seminary classroom while we give a little introduction to uh, Peter's letter to 1 Peter, and we set ourselves up for a series of conversations about 
who we are and how we respond to the culture around us. So I'm going to get a little technical today. So I want you to hang with me. You're going to have to do some work with me to stay with this. There's really good stuff here. And in the end, I'll try to bring some emphasis to that and tell you why that's such good stuff. So let's launch in. Let me start today with a general introduction. First Peter begins in a way that was typical for ancient Near Eastern letters. The author, Peter, first introduces himself, then he formally addresses his recipients, and then he offers a general greeting, and he does all of that in two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he begins. Peter, of course, is Simon, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and Jesus gave Simon the nickname Peter, which if it was translated literally means Rocky. And after that, Rocky became known much more by his nickname than by his given name. And Rocky was the man. Rocky was outspoken, sometimes brash and impetuous, but he was brave and adventurous and, and completely dedicated to following Jesus. In fact, many of the Jesus stories that were circulating in the Middle East and Europe at this time involved Peter. From very early on, he seems to have been the unquestioned leader of the church. In fact, in a couple of the Apostle Paul's letters, other letters in the New Testament, Paul seems to spend a great deal of time and energy defending his ministry and his teaching, but Peter never feels any need to do that because Peter was the man. Now, interestingly, Peter may have been smarter than he's sometimes given credit for. Scholars will say that 1 Peter is very sophisticated Greek. Now, perhaps he had a good editor, but that Peter had any familiarity with Greek at all is pretty amazing. By reputation, he was an unschooled Galilean fisherman who spoke dirty Aramaic and little else. But clearly, he was more than his reputation allowed. The other thing to remember about Peter is that he was a guy just like us. He had concerns, he had doubts, he got the flu, he blew it with his anger and pride, he hurt others and they hurt him, and at times he felt disappointed, a little lost and disconnected. He was a guy just like us. This is completely my imagination, but I imagine if we could interview Peter today, it might go something like this. So, uh, Rocky, we're glad to have you here. Welcome to Gateway Community Church. What do you think? Well, I'm a little stunned. I just had no idea this thing would really get this big. I mean, all over the world, uh, of course, we didn't have any idea the world was really this big, and I certainly had no idea it would last this long. I was certain Jesus was going to come back and fully set his kingdom up right away, you know, at least a few years at the most. Okay, yeah, I'm guessing this is quite a shock, Rocky. Hey, hey by the way, guess what we're reading today? I don't know. What are you reading? Have you got that collection of the Jesus stories that my buddy Mark was writing down for my memories? Yeah, we've got that collection, but we're not reading that today. We're reading from that letter you wrote to the Christians in the province of Asia. You're kidding. No. That's amazing. Wow. Very good, Doc. Yeah. You know, when I wrote that letter, something happened. You know those conversations you have where you just get lit up and you feel like something godlike is going on? You know, you say stuff that blows your own mind, and then the other person says something incredible and wise that you know really didn't come from them, and it just gets cool and amazing. You know those conversations? Well, when I was writing this letter, you can take that feeling and multiply it by about 10, even though we didn't really know about multiplication. <laughs> <laughs> but I just never knew anything after that. 
I never even knew these people got the letter, much less if it made any difference. It was very discouraging. So, wow, you, you still read that letter today? Yeah, we do. So you never really knew what happened. Why not, Rocky? They kind of put me to death. <laughs> I mean, and that hurt, the communication. <laughs> it was part of that weird world of the conspiracy that started happening after part of Rome burned. That's crazy, Peter. In fact, we tend to think of you as this awesome dude, always on top of his game and winning the whole world over to Christ. I can see how you would feel like that. <laughs> Never felt like that to me. You know, we don't always get the big picture. We just have to keep our gaze focused on the grace that will be given to us when Jesus shows up again. So much of the rest of what goes on is just above our pay grade. So we simply have to trust in him with all our heart. Yeah, you told us that in the letter, so now you're getting preachy. Thank you, Rocky. All right. So in July of 64 A.D., a fire broke out in Rome that ended up burning significant sections of the city. Nero was the emperor at the time, and he blamed the Christians for the, setting the fire. There are historians who actually believe that Nero himself set the fire so that he could rebuild those parts of Rome. And whether or not that's the truth, most historians believe that Nero needed a scapegoat so that people wouldn't blame the empire for its incompetence in being able to put the fire out. Christians were, quite frankly, an easy target. They were already unpopular. The Jesus movement was growing far too rapidly in most people's opinion, especially in the lower classes, and many were beginning to see Christianity as a terrible nuisance or worse. In fact, unfavorable conditions were being faced by Christians regularly all over the ancient world. This is part of what motivated Peter to write this letter, 1 Peter. So what about the first recipients of Peter's letter? The first recipients of Peter's letter, well, they weren't facing the kind of state-sponsored persecution that would end up killing Peter within a few months after he wrote this letter. But they were facing increasing animosity and at times hostility. And state-sponsored persecution already was a, a kind of a whisper in the Roman atmosphere all over the empire. So they were understandably worried, and they were wondering how sh they should respond to this increasingly hostile culture around them. Now, uh, these first recipients lived in the Roman provinces that occupy modern-day Turkey. Peter lists those for us in that first paragraph, and it, uh, flash that up if you would, Will, the map. So you can see, many scholars believe that he actually listed those provinces in the order that someone might have delivered the letter, a kind of circular letter around the provinces that are in modern-day Turkey, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, Asia. We don't know if Peter knew these churches or if he knew the individuals in the churches. He may have. His biography allows for some gaps of time during which he could have visited these territories. But we can tell a couple of important things about these people. First of all, these recipients were Gentile converts. He describes them as people who used to be led, quote, by evil desires when you lived in ignorance. And he also describes them as people who were once not part of the people of God and who did not receive God's mercy. And this is not how Peter would have described Jewish converts. These were Gentile converts. Secondly, he addresses, and this is interesting, he addresses slaves but not masters. 
and wives who had unbelieving husbands, but not husbands who have unbelieving wives. In other words, these Gentiles were mostly on the bottom end of society. These were not the power brokers. Add to that that they were suffering for having made the decision to be Christ followers. That's going to be important for us to remember as we listen to Peter. In some senses, these first hearers are different from us because we are people who circle at or near the top of the power structure in our culture. This doesn't change God's counsel to us, but it will color things a little differently as we work through this, including some of what we say today. Now, as I said, in this letter, Peter is going to give us some incredibly important principles and some specific advice about how to relate to the culture around us. This is going to be very interesting for us to look at, I think, especially now in light of the fact that we're in this social and political season that we're in. But before Peter formally launches into his teaching about how we should respond to the culture, he offers some essential insight about who we are. Let me repeat. He starts his teaching by reminding his first readers and us about our core identity. That's exactly the right order, don't you think? Look, he seems to be saying to us, this is who you are. And because of who you are, this then is how you should respond and interact with the culture around you. Diane and I had a a friend years ago who was part of the worship team of our former church, church in Boston. We'll call him Tom. Tom was a great young kid, eight or ten years younger than Diane and I. When we first met him, he was in college. After being in our church for a number of years, he moved back to the Midwest where he was from and we would find out later that Tom spent a considerable amount of time and energy online, and in that process, you know, kind of discovering and exploring, uh, he realized that he was gay. He let a few of us know that this transition had happened in his life, and at one point he came back to visit us in Boston. I didn't get to spend much time with Tom, but another guy who was also a great friend of Tom's and, and a part of our worship team, and close to Diane and I, we'll call him Rick. Rick was able to spend a considerable amount of time with Tom, and afterwards, Rick got together with me, and I was just completely undone, confused by his time with Tom. So, you know, tell me why, what's up? I promise you, this is not a diatribe about homosexuality. In fact, it really has nothing to do with homosexuality, or maybe it does, but uh, not principally. At one point in the conversation, Rick said, you know, I looked at Tom and I said, okay, I get it. That's okay, I get it. But you are completely different. You look different. You're talking differently. Everything about you is di- I don't even know who you are. And Tom said to Rick, I'm not sure I know who I am either. I feel a little bit lost. I think Tom was adrift spiritually and emotionally, at least in part, because he had lost sight of who he was. We cannot maintain an appropriate cultural response. We can't maintain who we are culturally if we don't know who we are. So Peter begins with teeing up this whole conversation by giving us a rich theological introduction. I want you to remember, we're we're not over-reading this. I'm going to spend some time plowing through these first two verses, and I want to assure you we're not over-reading this. Sending the letter of 1 Peter was not as simple as sending an email. This was carefully crafted. That, That was the situation with ancient Near Eastern letters. 
So there's no doubt that Peter has poured over every phrase of this, intending to communicate exactly what he's communicating, not to mention that we're convinced he had the literal inspiration of God laying on his heart. I mean, take your coolest God conversation and, as Rocky told us, multiply that by ten. That inspiration is laying on Peter, and he gives us this introduction, this sense of who we are in the first two verses. So Peter wastes no time. He begins right away with a theologically rich introduction, and he tells us two critical things. So this is what I want us to walk away with this morning. Two critical things about who we are. First of all, Peter tells us that we are God's elect. The Greek word for elect is electois, which means choice, selection, excellence, or excellent. So Peter's use of this word means a couple of very important things for us today. First of all, God's election of us means that we are excellent. We are not insignificant. We are not so-so at some things, but lousy at most things, which is how many of us tend to think of ourselves, frankly. We are exactly by design, perfectly fit for a noble purpose, supremely valuable. That's not just a pep talk. That's the truth. And all of those other messages which you and I entertain and rehearse in our minds and hearts are lies. The second concept related to election is is more complicated. God's election of us also means we are God's choice. We are God's selection. We are not accidental, nor are we in charge. We are a work that God did and is doing. Jesus put it like this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Paul put it like this. In Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In other words, there is nothing for us to take credit for about our spiritual lives, about our lives. We are not who we are because we are more clever than others. We are not who we are because we are more spiritual and we sought out truth and found God. We are not better people than those terrible people in our culture who don't believe any of the right things. Those wacky, terrible, naive people who want to let anybody go to anybody's bathroom or pick the issue or kind of person that drives you most crazy. You and I are not essentially wiser. You and I are not essentially better. But if you are in the process of building a real connection to God, and many of you are, then you are more blessed. You are more fortunate because God has chosen you. God has done something in you and is doing something in you. You are God's elected. Now, over the years, (laughs) there have certainly been people who have said to me, I don't buy that election stuff. That can't be right, Ed. That means we're just robots. That means we don't have any real choice. Well, make no mistake, we do have a choice. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. Not only do we have a choice, God requires that we make it. He requires that we say yes to him in order to have a connection to him. He requires that we offer him our love. But our choice of him depends on his choosing of us. Now, I'm not going to make this completely clear this morning. 
I'm hoping that you leave today with a little bit of heartburn that you'll have to think about and pray about this week and wrestle over. If you don't recognize that your choice of God is based on God's choice of you, then you run the risk of disagreeing with the apostles and with Jesus himself. If you don't recognize that your choice of God is secondary to God's choice of you, then you may not yet have a clear picture of who you really are, and that can infect your attitudes and your behaviors. You are God's choice. You are God's selection. That means you are special because of his work in you. That also means your spiritual life is really his work in you. If we do not remember this, listen, we run the risk of allowing pride and judgmentalism to gain a foothold in our attitudes. And we will find ourselves working our way toward our best selves instead of surrendering to his work in us, resting while he makes us our best selves. This is his work in us, his election. We're going to kick a dead horse. This is such a critically important concept for us to get that Peter modifies it in verse 2 with three more phrases. First of all, he says, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God's foreknowledge then becomes the basis or the ground of his election of us. Now, some of you who are uncomfortable with the whole idea of election are going to read this and say, aha! So God doesn't really choose us first, but he chooses us because he knows in advance what, what we will do with our choice. So it really all depends on our choice of him. That just seems more fair, and it, it feels more like my experience, because in my experience, it feels like I'm in charge. But I would encourage you to be very careful with that idea. First of all, it doesn't really gain you very much. I mean, if God knows it's going to happen, then it's going to happen. Plus, I would add that the Greek word for foreknowledge is the word prognosis. And the Greek-English dictionary offers this definition for that word. Quote, foreknowledge and predetermination. In other words, prognosis carries with its meaning the same nuance as the word electois or election. The idea is clearly that God is acting in advance of our action. Our salvation depends entirely on his previous action on our behalf. It's not as if God did something in Jesus and then waits hoping that we will respond. God is acting in your heart on your behalf. We're talking about the king of kings. We're not talking about someone who's sitting back hoping, oh, I hope so much that Tim and Terry will respond to me. God is moving in their hearts, choosing, electing. Besides, Paul completely equates these two ideas in Romans 8 when he says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we are chosen first according to the foreknowledge of God. And then he tells us this, this happens, this choosing thing happens through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which is Peter's second modifier. That word sanctify means to be made holy. It means holification. So the foreknowledge gives the basis of our chosenness. The second phrase gives us the means or the how it happened, the how-to of our chosenness. In other words, our chosenness gets worked out in, in real life as we are made holy by God's Spirit working in us. How would we know that I chose to plant 
an azalea bush at the back of our house. How would we know that? Because if you walk around to the back of my house right now and look, you will see a bush beginning to flower with little white azalea flowers. So how does our chosenness turn into something real and practical? The Spirit of God makes us look more and more like Jesus over time. We are chosen by means of the sanctifying work, the holifying work of the Spirit. A little side note here. I know the word Trinity isn't ever used in the Bible, but are you seeing what Peter's doing here? Okay, finally, Peter gives us the end toward which our chosenness points. We are chosen, he says, quote, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That's the goal of our chosenness. That's where we're headed. This weird phrase, sprinkled with his blood, it has in mind the Old Testament practice of sprinkling objects with the blood of sacrifices. This was done in Old Testament times as like an audiovisual aid to God's people to remind them that cleanliness and godliness were God's work and they were costly. So these sprinkled objects were made ceremonially clean and they were set apart for holy uses by the sprinkled blood. They were made to be for a certain usage. This points us to what Peter is going to say later in this same chapter in verses 18 and 19. Peter says this, listen, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. I love what John Piper says about this verse. Piper said, this reminds me how much it cost to get me to obey. The bottom line is the two phrases, obedience to Christ and sprinkled by his blood, they mean almost the same thing. We are chosen so that our lives, this is the goal, God's choosing this of us, is so that our lives might be completely for God's purposes. Let's highlight that. We're not chosen so that we might feel better. We're not chosen so that we might experience God's power. We're not chosen to improve our marriages. We're not chosen so that we might experience joy or even fullness. Those things do come occasionally and awesomely as a result of a life of obedience. But we are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of his choosing us. All right i got to read 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 again before we continue the second point of who we are. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen, harking back to that word elected, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. So we are God's elect. That's who we are. And Peter wants to make sure we get it, but there's more. If we go back to verse 1, we'll recognize a second observation. Peter tells us that we are God's exiles here. We're God's elect and we're God's exiles here. More specifically, we are exiles who are scattered. Some translations will say strangers scattered in the world. The word Scattered in this passage is actually the Greek word diaspora. 
the English Standard Version, English translation of this, by the way, translates that whole phrase, we are exiles of the dispersion. The idea of dispersion had deep roots in the Jewish psyche. This was the word they'd used of their time in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. when they'd been forced to live as exiles away from their homeland. This can make sense as an intro to Peter's letter, by the way. At the time of Peter's writing, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were 8 million Jews living outside of Palestine in various parts of the Roman Empire, considering themselves something of a diaspora. This was about 8% of the overall Roman population. And Jews were only marginally more popular than Christians. In fact, many times they were lumped together. They could have thought of themselves as the diaspora. But... Peter wasn't writing to these Jews. So if his first readers and us were mostly Gentile converts, and if we are the diaspora, if we are the scattered and dispersed ones, what is Peter getting at? Where are we dispersed from? Turns out this is an important question. And this is actually a a clever teaser on Peter's part. He will indirectly answer this question in a number of ways throughout the letter. To begin with, in the very next section of the letter, Peter will give us a hint when he tells us that we have an inheritance waiting for us. He says, with God in heaven. Paul hits the same theme even more plainly. Paul says it this way, our citizenship is in heaven. From there, we eagerly await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says the same thing much more poetically. The author of Hebrews, some of you will know, he he makes this long list of heroes of the faith. And in the middle of that section where he's outlined some of the heroes of the faith, the author of Hebrews says this, all these people, these heroes of the faith, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. As a critical part of his setup for teaching these young Christians how they should live in the world, in a world that was often mistreating them, by the way, Peter tells them that this world is not their true home. We cannot really understand what's going on around us, and we will never be able to respond appropriately to the culture we live in until we know that we are God's exiles. For these readers, as persecuted Christians... Peter was offering encouragement. He's saying, in effect, hold on, God is involved in everything that's happening. Look, justice is coming, full freedom and deliverance and abundance and right relatedness to one another and to God. Those things are coming. Hope in that. Hey, we saw the first signs of that coming in the resurrection of Jesus. Put your hope in that. Don't put your hope in the circumstances of this world because your exile's here. Be encouraged. Stay strong. Now, we have to remember that this is not Peter just giving pie-in-the-sky thinking. He's not saying, Peter is not saying, hey, put up with everything that's happening to you. Don't try to make any difference in your world. You can't really. So just hang on because lots of virgins and sweet music are waiting on you. That's not the message of Christianity. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray Hey, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. So we're certainly supposed to work for justice and righteousness here and now. We're supposed to pray for abundance and joy here and now. But that has to be balanced 
with the recognition that there will always be dissonance here. We never get it exactly right here. Not in our efforts toward justice. Not in our efforts to be kind. Not in our relationships. Nowhere. We don't get it perfectly right here. This is not our home. We will never get it exactly right while we're here. Again, this is a powerful encouragement to those who occupy the bottom of the social ladder. Pause for dramatic effect. This is a very positive encouragement for those who occupy the bottom of the social ladder, he said again. But for us, this same principle is more like a rebuke. We've worked very hard to make ourselves comfortable and at home here. And in many cases, we've done so with great success. In fact, we're always surprised when things don't go exactly the way they should go. When we have physical difficulties, we wonder, where is God? When the culture turns against us, we fret and we wring our hands and we wonder, how could this be? But we're aliens here. This is not our home. God's Spirit is sanctifying us, which means that God is forming something in us that is at odds with the culture around us. Listen, I'm going to end here. This is a really big deal. We are God's elect. We are God's exiles. Like I said, we threatened this morning to be too technical and boring. But this is a big stinking deal. And understanding this is a really big deal. All of us have at the very base, at the foundation of our lives and our personalities, some harmful and damaging messages that we have adopted, mostly from our parents and from early friend influences. You're not good at anything. You're such a loser. Why can't you get anything right? No one's ever going to love you. Why are you so fat? How come your hair is so goofy? You'll never amount to anything. And those messages get seated in our minds and our hearts deep at the base of our personalities, which means at the foundation of who we are, there is a piece in the corner or maybe the whole half of our foundation is settled on a piece of weakness. And that weakness exercises incredible, tremendous influence over our lives. And most of that influence, by the way, is unconscious. We're not even aware of it. But we anxiously scramble around the base of our lives, shoring up the crumbling weak spots with addictive habits like drink or drugs or porn or food that make us feel better if only for a little while. Or we overwork or we run too quickly into situations or relationships, or we too easily give ourselves away, talking about all of us, because we try desperately to strengthen that weak foundation that our lives have been built on. We try to shore it up. God alone can tell us who we really are. This is a really critically big deal. And we will never be able to relate appropriately, period, much less to the culture around us, to individuals or to large themes within our culture, until we know who we are. And that foundation really will form the basis of appropriate interaction and behavior and thinking about our culture when we understand we are God's choice. We are exiles here. 
We will never be able to move within our culture in God-honoring ways unless we know and remember that we are God's elect and we are God's exiles. Let's pray. Father, I confess I don't know who of us you wanted to speak to and how. I know we're not here today by accident. I know, Lord, that all of us are kind of feel like we've tossed around some ideas. We've addressed our heads. And we've given information. But we recognize, Lord, that the deepest parts of who we are in our hearts and the way we relate, the way we think about ourselves, the matrix we use, the mirror that we use to see ourselves, God, it is clouded and infected with wrong messages. Lord, we end up in sinful habits and we end up inappropriately responding to the culture around us because we don't get who we are. And in a season like this, or in a political season, especially in America, we can get all wrapped up in thinking that, you know, sometimes when we're right, we're not right. Because we've lost sight of who we are. Father, I pray for us as we work through these conversations over the next several weeks. But I pray for us especially today for the gentle reminder that, I don't know, maybe not so gentle, the reminder that we are your choice. This is so, it's not us. You did this. You did this. I don't know how we can be upset with others when they disagree with us because you did this. And this is not our homes. When we have a great day and the sun is shining and we're with somebody we love and it just conversation is awesome and we feel like super. I mean, that's the gift, Lord. That's not, we're not going to get that all the time. This is not our home. Uh, Hear us, Lord, and we make ourselves available to you, and whatever else you need to do to stir in us the rest of today, this week, bring this to mind. I pray, Lord, honestly, I pray for points of connection for us. I pray this week for times when we, we, oh, I am God's choice. Oh, this is not my home. Hear us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you find it?
Have a great Sunday.